Welcome to New Books and Poetry. I am your host, Jen Fitzgerald. It is great to be moving back to our long-form interviews after Chappuckapalooza 2016, and to start us off is Terrence Degnan from A Bench in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. Terrence Degnan is a poet. His most recent book, Still Something Rattles, was published this year by Sock Monkey Press. He produces a monthly storytelling series, How to Build a Fire, and co-hosts a monthly reading series entitled Poets Settlement. He lives in Brooklyn with his wife and daughter. Welcome, Terrence. Thank you. It is so good to be here. On the bench or talking to me? I mean, I think we're talking about in general. Okay. In the esoteric here. So before we even talk about you or the writing, can you please try to explain to our listeners how gorgeous the physical collection is? Sure. But I just did a head count of people that are also here with us. It's one. It's uh, There's seven people. There's a jogger, mm-hmm. two people with an umbrella, which is totally not necessary right now. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's threatening. <laughs> and uh, some chap with, a, I think, what a parcel of bread. I think that's what it is. But I'm, it's probably not bread. It could just be something. It could be a, you know, CV, that pipe that you put in your house. Mm-hmm. Um, are the umbrellas opened or closed? Both the umbrellas are open. Is it and actually they're walking raining? so close? No, it's not. But they're walking so close that they could be using one umbrella. And New Yorkers are really bad with umbrellas. Like they're single serving. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and they also um, like impale you with them a little as they're going. Yeah, that's about. what I'm talking about. Yeah. But they also use them one time. And it's like. They didn't check the weather. They used this umbrella one time. Nobody has to buy an expensive umbrella in New York. And the umbrella salesman is, is like the oldest thing known in New York. They're uh, everywhere. I they come out well, they come out and you know, at the right time. Yes. And at the right location. Um, they have their spots. Yeah, well if you were an umbrella salesman, why would you come out any other time but when it's raining or about to rain? Because I would test my wares. But you can only you test know? wares if it's raining. No, 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 no. Uh, that's that's a shitty umbrella salesman. That's, that's the umbrella salesman that only relies on the weather. Okay, I got you. Anyways, you know, I would have to describe rain. <laughs> <laughs> so could you describe rain as it corresponds to the aesthetics of your new collection? Yes, I can. Sure. Um, so I had an idea uh, about four years ago, and the idea was to write three chapters um, simultaneously and then encase them in some sort of uh, box. And I didn't know how any of that was going to be affordable. And I also didn't know how I was going to find all the people to put together this idea. But I did, and I had four years to do it. And four years is arbitrary. It could have taken 28 years, but... um, so I wrote these, I wrote about 300 poems to get to, I don't know, I guess it's 30 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I put them in three different chapters that sit separately in a wooden box that was made here in Brooklyn by this group of carpenters. And then um, a graphic designer designed a brand um, that has aspects of all the three chapters in the image of the brand, and then we branded each box and put the mm. chapters in the box. And um, 
as kind of a hat trick, we decided to emboss the titles on the different chapters. And the art inside the chapters is done by this guy, Morgan Jesse Lappin, and he went through his archive. He read the, the book, and he went through his archive and found three images, which are collages that coincide with the, uh, the chapters themselves. Mm-hmm. And then I went back in time and talked to all these different people, um, like Gary Snyder, mm-hmm. uh, so that they could write a quote that um, that would coincide with my chapters as well. And you know what? Back in back in the past, they were obliged to do so because they'd never met a time traveler before. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense to me. It makes total sense. Um, so let's hear some of the poems. For the first poem, I would actually like for you to read two consecutive pieces. Would you please read Sun-Bleached Squares Flank Celibate Photographs, followed by Transmissions from Wake Medical Hospital? Sun-Bleached Squares Flank Celibate Photographs. I'm feeding my brother ice chips. The edges of this minute are flapping down through the floor grates, where blood gets pushed with a squeegee, under which prayers for the dying hide. I'm waiting at a makeshift bridal altar for my girl, who has smashed clocks that dangle from a Bible belt. The polished toes of this minute, these minutes peek from behind ornate wooden doors, whose craftsmen's veins have dried, whose widows are braiding the crowns of flower girls. I'm hitchhiking to Jacksonville, Florida, a bag of Halloween candy tied to a branch, ripped from my father's tree, dangles curiously over Highway 23. The adrenaline-soaked minutes ascend and repel up and down my body's ropes. I'm watching a tiny bird in a hospital in a tent of air, trying to teach herself to breathe. The hallway is electrified with nurse and priest. The shadows of these minutes groan across a galaxy. The tightrope of the hour hand, the stress line of the second, could shatter gritted teeth. I'm gripping one-third of a brass pole on my grandmother's coffin, Immodest seconds fizzle and pop off into a Catholic atmosphere. Yellow and green transistor fires of her lone century burst in an urns and sensual steam. Cyclones dissolve overhead where saints are painted piously red. I made up that word in sensual, so I can't ever read it. (laughs) But it looks great on the page. Transmissions from Wake Medical Hospital. Nine nurses in nurse garb harbor stoic faces like cherubs, whose dimpled cheeks crack plaster. Nine sober nurses whipped empty vials of nitroglycerin at a bloody pail, missed penalties and gauzel hat tricks. My father buckles, screaming obscenities, never spoken outside of church, never heard inside the fallen logs of our sometimes parallel timelines. He says to the alpha nurse, I am so weak. Of to which I repeat, I am so weak will not be the last words I relay back to my brothers. I dial in different spellings, faulty recon lines, so weeks. My, mother, my father always sewed weeks into company trousers, into weekend slacks. He could sew the hours of regularly scheduled test screens into long, lazy tenth innings. He could make lightning barter seconds from thunder. My father, the Catholic witch doctor could buy a second life from the Pope for seven days outside of God's shadow. He could make whole summers out of hardware store lumber, make crickets count to ten. My dad, the tailor, could turn the whole the, could turn the color of poor Polaroids 
into sepia naval stories. My wife, much later and states away, says on the telephone, you knew to this day would someday come. Then lovingly, you stupid Irish fuck. Thank you very much. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about you. Uh, where did you grow up? Uh, we grew up all over. I, w- I was born in Rochester. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that city. But when Kodak closed and all the jobs went south, we went south. Um, and that was a trend. And I lived in, went to Catholic schools all over North Carolina and then I uh, went to college in Pittsburgh. Um, but Rochester and Pittsburgh kind of speak to me as cities more than a lot of the cities in the South do. Yeah. You know, um, most of the cities in the South that I lived in were newer or becoming new again. But the ones in the in the North that I lived in, there was all these remnants of the city, the cities that they used to be or towns that they used to be. I mean, they're both... I guess called cities, but they're really, they have town behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so the old bridges in Pittsburgh and the Genesee River in Rochester and the old Kodak factory, those are kind of, that, that's the architecture that speaks to me as a, as a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of the people that surround that architecture and it's dilapidated current, uh, attitude within the city, I guess. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I don't know where I grew up. I grew up in a bunch of moments, I think. Mm-hmm. I get that. Um, did you ever have Genesee beer? Yeah, Genesee cream ale. Jenny mm-hmm. is what we called it. Um, that's the first beer I ever tasted. Really? Was, yeah, yeah. My dad used to like put a, a beer on the ground. He hasn't drank in a long time. But um, he used to put a Jenny cream ale on the ground and throw throw baseballs with us. Um, so we play catch and then he was like, Hey, you want to taste it? You know, like a, like a good old Rochester dad. And you know, you taste it and you're like, ah, that's disgusting. <laughs> it's still disgusting. <laughs> what, what they say about Jenny cream ale is not only does it make the mobiles, you know, that hang from the trees in Rochester, mm-hmm. but also, um, what they do to brew it is they go just, they go down to the Genesee river and they put a can in the river and then they close up that can and they put it in a six pack and they send it out. Mm-hmm. For everybody to drink. <laughs> kind of, but it's better than Natty Ice, at least. That, that oh my say. God, Natty Ice! <laughs> I don't even think people should actually be like. There should be a license that you have to pass to drink Natty Ice. Yeah. Well, when you pay three dollars for twenty-four of them, you should be concerned. Um, so, when did you know you were a writer and that you needed to pursue it? Uh, I was a. I painted for a long time, and then a brother of mine introduced poetry into my life. I don't know if anybody really knows they're a writer. I don't know when anybody passes that threshold, you know. Um, and if there's a, a whole bunch of bullet marks or bullet points that lead up to it. But I know it's something that I like to do. I know it's something that um, it makes it easier for me to get across uh, the art that I'm trying to get across mm-hmm. more than paint. Um, I was surprised by it. I was surprised by poetry and what it could do and how it spoke to me more than a lot of artists at the time. Um, and so I've always pursued it, but I've always uh, also felt that I don't ever want to master it. Really? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I'm trying, but I, I don't ever want to get to a point where I'm comfortable with it, if that makes sense. Yes. yes you know, like I, uh, uh, I'm more drawn to writers that find it confusing and are wrestling with it than ones that um, speak down from it. Mm. Uh, so for me, poetry is a vehicle and it's one I've had for a long time. And so the bottom's rusted out and the, the stick shift doesn't work. And, um, you know, I've constantly have to fix it and I have to go back to the manual and it confuses me mm-hmm. beyond. And, and I, I love that about it, you know? And, yeah. and so I've taught it before and I've come from this place I don't know. I mean, you know, like a, there's a botanist when they're talking to a group of people at the Brooklyn Botanical Garden. How do they feel when they're talking about a plant that they've studied for a long time that still mesmerizes them? You know, hmm. I, I don't know. No, I get that. I get you. I mean, you can have a sort of mastery of something that still captivates you or fills you with wonder. And and poetry itself, every time we think we have a definition, it, it shapeshifts. It does something else, and then it retains its poemness, um, which is also why I love it. Uh, what was the first poetry that you connected with? Uh, I think that the first poem that I that told me that poetry was different than other forms was "Howl" by Ellen Ginsberg. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I haven't read it in years now because it did what it needed to do back then. And I'm sure I'm going to return to it at some point, but you know, who he was in the time, um, when he was writing poetry and who he was surrounded by and what he was able to accomplish and the voice. I mean, he was such a contrarian because there's a lot of the Allen Ginsberg's in this world that weren't accepted at that time you know, Walt Whitman and, you know, and don't get me wrong, that exists in every group. Um, I mean, you know, William Collins Williams would have said the same thing. Sylvia Plath couldn't exist on this planet. Um, but to me, you know, Ginsburg was inside of a society that he was trying to describe and could see all of its faults and still be in love with it. Yeah. You know, like, and still, uh, be in lust with it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I don't know, you, you know, I'm, I'm attracted to the contrarians. I tend to want to make sense of society from people that are not, or that are unwilling to bullshit about it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he fulfilled that for me at a young age. And from then, you know, I just, I just started to read everything. And I started to consume poetry like an addict. <laughs> um, so I want to hear another one of your poems. Um, could you please read on matters, porcelain, and other things I know of childhood? Sure. These, uh, some of these poems are written to my daughter to retain childhood. Um, so they're, the unicorn poems are the impossible ones. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of lies in here. I love telling lies. <laughs> On matters porcelain and other things I know of childhood. You will never grow old. You will never die. You'll never make it on Noah's boat. Your name is written in the ink housed in a well for snow that falls from the wings on moths. There are more magicians than scientists. A man 
undiscovered, wears a starry hat. To this regard, child, you'll never find thyself. You may be a dog, as I may be too. Our chains may let out from one crystallized point, spiraling from each other's orbits, but thyself is not empirical, as far as I know. <laughs> it wasn't even yourself who named you. My father's father was James, such that, such that my father is James, such that I am James myself. You are James, as your daughter James shall tell you. Christ was James. I'm unsure that James was born. I'm sure that James will never die. He was saved from the murdering waters below the sailboat of Noah. I'm also sure that gravestones are a waste of time. If you can look down, way down ahead of yourself, your headstone is a bone that juts from the skull of ancient horses. There, James stands at your grave, muttering to himself the word begat, with hands hissing snowflakes, flakes that fall as coins to wish upon, coins that bear your name at the face and his at the tail. And he doesn't decide, nor do I, nor you yourself, who and what exactly you are and what exactly to name you. Thank you. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the three parts of the collection, um, Letters from Purgatory, Unicorn, and Rome. I know that you wrote them simultaneously, but I mean, as you were drafting, did you have an idea that um, they would be delineated in this way? Like, were you writing towards the chapters? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I get bored real easy. Mm-hmm. And so um, it was fun to get – I write on train, and so when I would open – something to write on, I would ask myself what chapter I wanted to write from um, mm-hmm. that day. Like, what chapter wasn't boring me the most? Because <laughs> um, it's hard to write a concept book, and I needed to write a concept book to break my voice, because I was just going to continually write from the same voice forever and ever, unless I did that. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I mean, I need is such a dumb word, but um, I wanted to I didn't want to write political poems again, um, because so many of them, so many of them are contrite. So many of them don't know what the fuck they're saying, and so many of them um, are making att- attempts at something that they cannot succeed at. And so the Roman chapter came back to me from a long time ago, um, from a voice I hadn't really been writing from for years and years, and knowing that I was going to write poems about the American tailspin, I also wanted to write something beautiful, and so I wrote all these impossible poems uh, for Unicorn, and then Letters from Purgatory is somewhat of the old voice that I'd gotten used to, but it was it was going to be poems written from that time. I guess it would be 2012 to 2015 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, like it, I guess it's a uh, time capsule from one person's perspective. So I could still return to my wheelhouse uh, so that I wasn't lost in the woods, but I was also writing the unicorn poems and the Roman poems simultaneously. And I think that, to be honest with you, I think that I wouldn't be able to write the Roman poems if the unicorn didn't exist because I needed to replace just something that was abhorrent with something that was beautiful. Yeah. Um, because I was disgusted at, at what I was seeing, and I think that this was a very predictable time in American history. And I think that people that couldn't predict it were living under a rock. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you, for sure. Um, and I actually want to jump into that last section for the next poem. Could you please read The Beginning is Near? 
Sure. This is the most recent thing that I wrote um, for this book, and it just made it just made the cut. It's like a brand new race car. <laughs> the, the beginning is near. Say your peace to the old ways. Make amends with your comforts. Run your fingers along a chain-link fence for the last time. Soon you will wonder the adjectives in terms like honorable profession. Wasn't it always honorable to cook, to raise a brood, to wash the grime from the dashboard? Your thoughts, no longer fibers, have made peace with the sea, have made peace with the dying seas. There are mountains standing on the ocean floor. There are ocean floors in the mouths of clouds. You are no less important than your hunches. Humanity was best when it provided a trap door for itself, when the honeycomb in the yard petrified, when weeds grew like weeds. The cessation of windows has emerged, the floorboards have yawned in the compost. One can trace the profile of a house between a set of saplings and imagine a house's specific vocabulary, doorknob extinctions, moldings, dodos. Language is crawling out of its egg, one with several phases, phrases for silence. Several terms for remotely falling snows. There are words that coin the idea of after stampede. There are nomadic words that have no spellings. A coliseum never existed without ruins. A tower never stood without its inverted fountains. A pyramid never sprung in the vacuum of its own mathematics. Thank you. Um, so before I talk to you about the uh, the craft of this, is there anything that you want to say about this poem? I, yeah, I know that it was the most recent one that you wrote, um, but tell us about it. Um, I mean, it's obvious. There's everybody's addicted to diet uh, to um, the apocalypse right now. Yeah. You know, we're like we're into ruin porn. <laughs> <laughs> And I think that we scare ourselves of the things that we are afraid of because we want to anticipate them. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this poem is written from a point of regret. Like, here are all the things that you could have avoided if you weren't so selfish and greedy. And instead, I'm going to describe to you what you caused because you you knew that you only had this one lifetime and so you're selfish with it. And, um, you know, I don't know who the, the, the you is specifically. There's no face to it, per mm-hmm. se. But um, I think collectively we, we allow this to happen. Yeah. And, and I didn't want, you know, there's the, the feeling that you get watching ruined porn is like this beautiful anticipation. And I didn't want to write from that perspective. I wanted to write a perspective of seeing backwards and saying, I love that building. Why did you fucking let it have become that thing that's standing there now? You mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of feel like that is my viewpoint when I'm even walking in the, in the city now, you know, I start looking at things in past tense. Yeah. Um, our in- inability to look back at the things that not only we have done, but that our predecessors have, have done has put us in this like constant state of anxiety about the future. Um, and, and I've heard people say that our obsession with the apocalypse and zombies is like 
ingrained in our psyche as fear of retribution for the violence, like the literal 300 years of violence in this country that we can't interrogate, but that like sits in us. And so we have to do something. So we prepare and we build walls around us and we can our food and we get guns. And, and I think we're like just pointing the guns at ourselves. I don't, I don't know if we can't interrogate it. No, not, not can't as in it's an impossible thing. Can't as in won't or don't have the, um, the tools to or don't even have the impetus to as Americans. Uh, you know, it's, it's – we've tried to look at where the thing falls apart. You know, you look at this election, for example, and then you look at all the people in your life that you know lit a bomb, right? Yep. And so you want to talk about the bomb being lit. And you want to talk about the people that were closer to lighting the bomb, even though you're part of that bomb and you're part of the person that was closer to lit the bomb. But at some point, people don't want to talk about it. And when you want to talk about it, you are you are the pariah. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I think the word isn't. You know, the conversation that begins right after a bad car crash, mm-hmm. right? You got a whole group of people standing around and they're looking at this horrific mess of, you know, a car that was supposed to make it and a person inside it that was once alive. And we are so quick to jump into normal conversation while we're standing in front of a car crash. You know, like we, we start with pleasantries and introducing ourselves to each other and finding out each other's names and not having the conversation about the horrific thing that's standing in front of us. I think that, um, I think that a is normal car crashes happen every day. Bodies are thrown all over the road and, um, people that deal with that on a regular every day, people that write about what's going on right now, um, know exactly what's going on and can articulate it. And even if they don't exactly know why it happened, they, they're closer to it in the, in the articulation sense. Mm-hmm. And, um, but most of us are standing around a car crash, have, you know, having pleasantries and that is considered normal. So the frustration is that normal the thing that the people that describe as normal is isn't mm-hmm. it's not normal at all you know it's not normal to build a a tower out of sawdust and spit and throw it up in a neighborhood and say that people should live in it but that happens on a regular everyday basis and when people look at it they know it's ugly and they know that it could have been made beautifully to stand the test of time. Instead, they didn't do that because the very the, the functionality of that building is money. And the functionality of racism is money. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, the functionality of polluting every single thing that we can get our hands on is money. You know? Yes, I do. I do. So, uh, but nobody wants to talk about that. And so when you get to write poems, I don't really feel like I'm slamming a gavel. I feel like 
I'm looking at a group that I both love and am disgusted by, and I'm able to say things on my terms. Mm-hmm. Which I can't say this things on my terms in conversation because people are so quick to pl- jump to pleasantries. That's actually a really good explanation. Thank you. Um, and I hate to segue into a much less sexy conversation, but I wanted to talk about, you know, your why you uh, chose not to capitalize or, or punctuate these poems. Oh, um, I capitalize uh, proper nouns when they need to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but. You know, I love E.E. E. Cummings. I love the fact that um, you can strip down language. I mean, I punctuate. I throw a comma in a, in a poem when my mind is pausing mm-hmm. sometimes and sometimes where it's supposed to be. Um, you know, I think that there's a semicolon in a newer work. <laughs> <laughs> semicolon is also a pariah. But uh, I don't know. I mean, I think that capitalization and in poetry and punctuation in poetry, there's been this major return to start writing in prose and, and use the, the handbooks to prove to the rest of the world that poets know correct grammar and how to write. And mm-hmm. to me, that there's a uh, sometimes there's a, uh, a loss there. Okay. Because there's a bunch of other poets that came along that said, you know, we don't need your fucking rules. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't know. Yeah. Who's going to who's gonna tell a painter how to paint? And, you know, Merwin does it like a boss, so. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, there's, who's that, that guy that wrote My Struggle? I don't know. It's a, a work um, that's many, many chapters. It's like 900 pages. Oh, the or, Scandinavian guy? Yeah, he's never edited his, mm. his work. But, when, you know, I think that that's, there's a laziness to that, too, with having it be yeah. millions of words. <laughs> yes. But I didn't do it out of laziness, you know. Um, I carry around with me a, a book on grammar. Um just so I can remind myself of the rules that I tend to break often. Yes. And that's true of any art. In order to subvert it, you have to master it first. So grammar, in order to subvert it, um, you have to know it. So this is definitely, it's not a deficiency of knowledge, but I definitely thought it was an aesthetic choice or even a political choice that you were making. Um, I mean, I think originally it was political. You know, to say that art is art, mm-hmm. but it's just I've gotten used to it. It's like an old hat at this point. Yeah. Um, but speaking of language, you know, I think Gary Snyder says it right when he says in, in his the quotes in the book, but mm-hmm. and I don't read it, but that the grammar is a living thing and that language is a living thing that cannot be mastered. And there's. It's, you know, I, I think that I'll probably only speak one language well. Mm-hmm. And that there's a that's a point of sorrow to me that all the rules that I've learned 
when it comes to what I write, they're completely different if I start walking, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a major part of me that wishes that I could read every every book and uh, study every bird, but that's just not going to happen. And so when I think about language, I want to be the thing that is carving it, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that other people want to be the thing that is is reminding the future where we came from. But I think I'm doing a, a pretty shitty job of breaking what the future is going to read, <laughs> you know? Like, I, I just want to be the thing that carves the language. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's, maybe there's some laziness there, but also, um, it's like a canvas. You know, I'm more excited about a canvas than I am about a museum mm-hmm. at this point in my life. Okay. I get that. Um, you know, there are some who argue, and Noam Chomsky was one of the main people, that uh, there is an innate grammar that we're all born with, that, you know, we come into this world with something inside of us that has the ability to, um, whether it be to create a sentence or to create a means of communication that would make sense to everybody else. So I guess what we learn outside is really in conversation with what we were born with, and then what we give back is some sort of medley or mixture or crazy little creature of the two. Well, poetry comes off as patronizing to so many people, and that's just not my entry into it at all. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's like a lifeblood to me, and so I don't want to come off as patronizing and... Um, I'm not I'm not going to make an attempt at writing high art in the mm-hmm. sense that um you know I don't I want it to be accessible to everybody. Yeah. And I want the, the 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 thing that I really made an attempt to do with this book is to make the language accessible. Mm-hmm. Um and it was less accessible in my first book. A lot, of, a lot of people say that you know young writers hide and old writers tell. Mm-hmm. Um Maybe that's true, but I think it's more there's a natural occurrence that happens there. You know, it just comes with comfort. Yeah. Uh, and not, um, and not, I don't think that's like this, there's an intentional decision that gets made. I think that you ease into feeling okay with what you're doing and then in your perspective is your perspective. And I honestly want anybody to pick up one of my poems and not feel like they're being talked down to that i'm that i love them mm-hmm. to be honest with you awesome and and i mean let's be real there are poets who write poems that other people can't understand so that they could be patronizing i mean like that that's an actual thing that exists i mean people say that about heart cranes the bridge but um i mean you also get to a point where you're surrounded by that on a regular basis and uh, you're just thinking in those terms. I think that a lot of people are afraid when they're writing poetry, mm-hmm. and that's just a that's not that's not where you should be standing. I mean, maybe I mean maybe if you're writing about something that scares you, but I don't think that 
you should look around and be afraid of your contemporaries. Um, this actually segues perfect into the next poem and thing I'd like to discuss with you. So could you please read um, how the fish became the person who then became you? How the fish became the person who then became you. You began a fish, and because you were ours, we held our heads underwater and screamed, swim, and swim you did. We nearly drowned with our underwater screaming. Upon hearing the voices you've been longing, you swam too fast, shot right up out of the tub, a four-pound catch flopping on our bathroom tiles, and lay gasping for air. They gave you a fish tank and a little girl human with a set of little girl human lungs, and you became you as we tapped on the glass and wondered what your name could possibly be. And people in pajamas wondered in awe at your fish-to-human fight. They called you a fighter, and so we looked for fighter girl names, but none of them stuck to your little girl scales. Desperate, we turned in our letters in the Scrabble name bag and fished out a few vowels and consonants, tacked them to the hatchery walls, and there they hung above your head while you taught your little girl human body to breathe. So from that poem, a reader might easily discern that there was no speaker, as in the fictionalized character created by poets in order to tell a story. Um, do you want to verify whether or not that was Terence or a speaker? And do you want to talk a little bit about what you think of the speaker in poetry as a function? Um, I mean, I guess the we would be the parents mm -hmm. and that poem. Um, I don't know. I, I Entry into what you're writing is always tricky. Mm -hmm. You know, most people, when they sit down to write, or a lot of poets, when they sit down to write, they're not, they don't say, I'm going to write about X. They just start writing, you know, and mm -hmm. then it usually has to do with something they were thinking about, you know, nine years ago or moments before the writing happened. Um, and I think that the voice and the speaker is the vehicle, you know, it's just what they choose to use in order to make sure that the, the correct, the, the vehicle is going to work. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I'm I write from the eye a lot uh, when I'm trying to portray something that I feel strongly about, um, and then oftentimes I write from an ambiguous point of view if I'm trying to figure some shit out. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that there's a lot of ambiguity in the speakers point of view because I'm constantly confused, you know, and the second that I begin to believe something about the nature of humanity or believe something about myself or believe something about um, a, a philosophy that I've been studying for years, uh, it changes and I become confused and then the, the speaker's point of view becomes more ambiguous. But if you know, if I'm angry or if I'm hurt, uh, oftentimes the I comes into play because, you know, I, I need to say the thing that is happening is affecting me, the writer, mm -hmm. you know, and, and the writer is, 
I don't know who that person is because it's no longer me. You know, I'm not that person anymore. Yeah. Like Dylan said, I'm not there. You know, I can't even read old things that I've written. Other people are happy with it, but there's no, there's very little access points for, very few access points for me when it comes to the old stuff because I am no longer there. You know? And, um, so I think that what door we choose to open and, uh, step through has everything to do with what we're trying to accomplish. Um, and less to do with the importance of voice in the global sense. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, now, are you the type of poet that will sit down, um, you know, just feel as though there's something that you need to process and then sit down and do it through the poem? Or do you find yourself ruminating and then getting to the page once you've sorted stuff out? Um, or both. You can be both. A lot of people, ha- you know, s- sit on a poem for many years because they're afraid that they're going to ruin it by writing it too soon. I know that feeling. And but there's something really exciting about just looking down at a blank thing and saying, go, <laughs> you know? Yes. And um, 90% of the time, a lot of the thing, one thing that people don't know about their favorite writers is that 95% of the time they're failing. Like anytime you're picking up a person's book, like I love to, I love to destroy the mysteries um, because that's such a fiction. Anytime anybody picks up a book that they love, that is their favorite writer hitting on all pistons. Like, like they're on the best drug ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and whenever they pick up something that they don't like, it's because that a writer was phoning it in and they had a deadline and, um, and that's just that's a sin, <laughs> it's yeah. a, and and it's also um, most of what you will find in a in a bookstore. You know, like the, the there is a choir of trees that are freaking moaning in anguish at the fact that shit had to be put on. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but. Um, you know, like my favorite writers. Uh, yeah, I'm reading this uh, a, a book. Um, sorry about the ambient noise that you're going to catch by no, just opening I'm, my bag. I'm, I'm completely distracted by the idea of walking into a Barnes and Nobles and just hearing the the cries and screams of trees from all of the shelves. Yeah, but just imagine being the writer that did that to them in that bookstore, trying to find a different book that's better than the shit that they wrote, because. That those trees would then be able to pinpoint that person and be like, "Fuck you, <laughs> <laughs> you did this to us." <laughs> but like, um, I'm reading Map, which is the collective work uh, work of Wislawa Zimborska. Yes, mm-hmm. you are. I was so afraid to say her last name. I got you. But reading the arc of her voice. I mean, it's funny because there are some things that she writes that the jealousy that permeates my spirit when I'm reading it 
is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, like the early stuff is all rhymers mm-hmm. and, uh, and kind of training wheels. And I don't hold the training wheels against her, but once she's, you know, once she's a, an acrobat, she's an acrobat. And, oh man. Now, is and that I just, the book cover where she, there's a picture of her smoking? No, she's leaning out and looking down upon some city that doesn't exist anymore from a balcony that likely doesn't stand there anymore. Okay. And, uh, and she's kind of peeking. Hmm. She's got pearls on, I think. Hmm. Her final means- book, um, is very much what, what you're talking about. It's the, you know, don't give a fuck. Um, take the training wheels off, say the things you need to say. Um, and the picture on the cover is her in her own kitchen smoking a cigarette. Um, but what few people know is that in that picture, she already has stage four lung cancer and she's just like, fuck it. And, it's <laughs> and then the poems, the poems are like the same thing. It's like, you know, here I am. I'm going to do the thing that I want to do. And I don't care what you think about it. It makes me think that I should wear my pearls today. You should. You should. She did it. Power pearls. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, you know what? Like, it's all when we're jumping into a poem, and it it ends up doing being magic, being the thing that we're not capable of doing on a regular basis, mm-hmm. being the thing that like makes us step into something better, some better version of ourselves. And not even ourselves, but a better version of the conglomerate, because yeah. language is the conglomerate. I mean, I've I've read everything that I've read, and I have studied everything that I've studied, and I'm in love. But I am also a, a product of that, and and I am hopefully creating, like even in a, in a minutia sense, that that future product. But you know, like you're not going to find my name in the book very easily mm-hmm. because it doesn't mean that much to me. I don't really like signing books and all that shit because that means very little to me too, because really I'm into the art and, um, and when I, when I get to step into the robes that I don't deserve, um, I don't really know what's happening. I just know it's happening and whatever voice that I'm using, utilizing for that, that voice decided to be itself, you know, yeah. like from my subconscious buried deep, way too deep for me to find it on a regular basis, decided that that's what needed to happen. And, um, and I just accepted it and let, let it happen. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't think that I, anybody, anybody that, Maybe some people do. Some people are like, I'm going to write. And I mean, obviously, like Citizen is written in second person. Yes. And I love I love it for that. And that's an, in- an intentional choice. And it's a, the perfect choice. But um, that's not I don't ever do that. <laughs> um, I would love for you to share the final poem with us now. Um, please read Rome. I loved you more than bread. Rome. I loved you more than bread. On the avenue, or the skyline, or rather, anything rectangular, I trace out thousands of extinctions, Roman flags, cassette tapes, dodos, salt lakes, apparitions, 
floating over the flats like thoughts, bubbles. Up until, up until I turned 17, I said I'd die for America. I wouldn't die for America anymore. I couldn't tell you how many stars were bought in the Louisiana Purchase. I couldn't tell you how many fingers it took to sew a Coliseum halftime show, how many fighter jets flew overhead, or the last time we used the words during peacetime. Peacetime is an intermission, a time to fill drinks at the satellite bar. The last apocalyptic poem has been written, yet no apocalypse. There's no more need to sell the bomb, which is to say the campaign was a, su- was a success. Was a success. <laughs> Which is to say the campaign was a success. The architects have gone to dust, naturally. Small roams built from Caesar coins lay in the Hudson Bay among the oyster beds as rats check their watches while tapping their toes like football fans at church. Thank you, thank you. Um, Mm -hmm. So the final two questions that I love to ask poets are... um, what are you reading now and what are you listening to now? So we know that you're reading Zimborska. Who else? Um, anything I can get my hands on. Uh, let me think. I am reading Dan Rather's blog. <laughs> A lot of people are. What's up with that? <laughs> I mean, I just got to be honest. <laughs> I don't know about Dan Rather. He's, he's confusing me these days. So what about yeah. his blog is pulling in, Terrence? Um, he, you know, Dan Rather is studying Donald Trump like a scientist. And I can't tear myself away from that relationship. I don't know mm-hmm. if I can yet. Um, but I'm not ready to read all of the... I'm not ready to really interface with the fire and brimstone that is about to be written. Um, partially because I have an expectation that the first wave of that is going to be sophomoric. Mm-hmm. Um, and partially because I'm just, I'm not ready, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I know, I, you know, like everybody's saying, they'll put on your shield and, and, and brandish your sword and um, I, I just kind of want to I kind of want to stand like a dad at the edge of the pool in a pair of dad swimming trunks and kind of take a big, wide angle look at my society for a second mm-hmm. um, and and all of it before I get involved in reading the, where everybody's going to be coming from. You know, um, mm-hmm. because you, you were never right. We're always just, uh, we're, we're, we're small iotas of correctness and, and, uh, you know, like a smattering of truth. And so I'm reading Dan Rather because, you know, his truth is, is coming from this grandpa perspective of America. And journalism, mm-hmm. and he was kicked out of journalism for not outing George Bush correctly. But now he would be considered like a litmus test for journalism, and in like the state of journalism that we're in right now, where it doesn't matter. Like truth is far less important than entertainment. Yeah. 
Um, and, you know, Anderson Cooper sleeps on a pillow stuffed with checks. Hmm. And I probably wouldn't be comfortable. Well, it is. It just depends on who you are. <laughs> it has to do. It's all relative to who you are. Um, but poetry-wise, I just read a book which is quote unquote prose, but it was written by a poet, and it's called "Grief Is a Thing with Feathers." Sounds familiar. Um, I wish I knew the ty- uh, the author, but I never know the authors. Um, but it's it's written from the perspective of a of a man who lost his wife, who is then raising two sons, and a crow introduces itself into their life because it feeds off of grief. Hmm. The, the crow feeds off of grief, but it also it stands as a distraction to grief. Um, and I think that I'm grieving in a in a general sense, um, and I think that I'm looking to refine that grief. So that I can um, make sense of it, but also that I can put it out there. Yeah. Um, and so I read that. I would recommend that book to anybody. And I'm sure that you can find the title of the, the author. I gave it away or else I would be able to tell you the author. And I'm I, I'm incapable of Googling it right now. But mm-hmm. I, I give books that um, that have a profound effect on me away to the people. I think that it will also have an effect. And I, I give them away all the time. I don't really believe in keeping books per okay. se. Um, so I'm constantly giving away my treasure hmm. and uh, listening to the, um, run the jewels just came out with a track, uh, about our political, um, explosions and they're responding to, the Americans that want to blow up the system. Um, they're also responding to racism. I think that, you know, what's funny about Donald Trump that people aren't thinking about is that Donald Trump also gives us a, a fat target to aim all of our throwing stars at mm-hmm. so that we can describe this thing that never had that such an obvious target in the past. You know, mm-hmm. like you can say, I hate the KKK. But there's no face of the KKK. I mean, in and of itself, itself it exists as a faceless mob, mm-hmm. you know. And um, so what what this current political carnival provides for us is a direct threat and a direct target. And I think that we've been waiting, not waiting for this to happen, but I think that we've been waiting to have something to refine like a laser beam, our forces um, or direct our refined forces at. And that is now provided. And a bunch of people are coming together to talk about things that have been bothering us and affecting us and destroying us for, for centuries. You know, And now everybody's coming together. It didn't need to happen like this. It wasn't required. Mm-hmm. But, but now it's happening and... You know, I don't believe in good guys and bad guys either. You know, like bad guys are future good guys. Good guys are future bad guys. And the spectrum is wide. And there are pieces of me that are bad guy. And I hate that about myself. But there's a bigger version of me that wants to fight for what we can become. And um, and I think that there's there's an army that's being put together or whatever you want to call it. 
um, you know, like the people that went to Standing Rock, the veterans that went to Standing Rock are now going to Flint. I heard. And, and so that is what refines me as a writer. Like if, if they're willing to go to Standing Rock and freeze their asses off and then go to Flint and freeze their asses off because of what's happening to people that have always been disenfranchised in the United States. And my job is to be writing, but also be, be an activist, but also writing. Mm-hmm. Um, it really does help me pull myself up by my bootstraps. But I, you know, I was listening, I'm listening to kind of the fight songs okay. and I don't know if I'm listening to them from a perspective of someone that wants to be reminded about how people used to fight or I need to be inspired. But, um, you know, I, I, I've got Dylan on the turntable. <laughs> I do know. I've been having a hard time even picking a music to listen to, even having something in the background of my own thoughts, because what's going on inside of my head is so loud and so staticky that any outside noise just makes it unbearable. But I get that. I understand that. Yeah, it'll take time. Um, I, I haven't really read too many of the responses because I feel like anything that has, is going to be written before next year is going to be knee jerk to uh, to a degree and um, reactionary and maybe even for the purpose of entertainment. So I'm abstaining from. From reading too much, um, and I'm, I'm allowing my own thoughts to crystallize. I'm working on my own essays about socioeconomic class and uh, you know the myth of, of race as a social construct because of it. <laughs> <laughs> so you're doing your homework. Oh, oh God, I'm reading so the reference books. You know, reference books silence the static for sure. They they give you um give you a laser i have been reading a lot of reference books and a lot of like um the anatomy of inequality uh, labor history uh class was written in the 1980s by paul fussell who i fucking hate since reading this book but um <laughs> there's a lot of a lot of information that came out about this in the 1980s and then absolutely nothing until like last week so I think it's it's time for writers to to do our homework and to write the essays that are less about I'm really sad and angry and scared and more yeah. about, you know, here is the history, here is what we're reacting to, and if we want to do it differently, here are my ideas. I was watching Oliver Stone's Untold Story of America, mm-hmm. um, and it makes everything so plainly obvious. You know, like... I think that there are generations that like to say, oh, it's worse now than it was then. And and I just want to be like, no, 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 no. (laughs) Like, yes, people are dying by the tens every day now, but they were dying by the hundreds, you know, and like and the fact that we are willing to be just as as furious about people dying in the tens is great. But I'm looking at our history and looking at our love of bloodshed and our uh, our kind of ambivalence to humanity. And it's just, I feel dumb. I feel like, a, like, like our pants are down. Yeah. You know, and, and there's all just a little bit of history repeating. 
And we, we are, we're surprised by the normalcy of it. Mm-hmm. If that makes any sense. They're like, Oh, th- wow, this is happening. And I want to say, of course it's happening. Of course people are, are struggling in the same exact way, but in it's refined, you know, like, of course this is not going anywhere. Of yeah. course we have to be at the front lines. Of course we are going to do the hard, thankless job of being at the front lines because that's required. And most of our society is not willing to be there. It's true. And, and I think that as like as a reader, I want to hear somebody that can inspire more people to be standing on the front lines. Mm-hmm. You know, not like telling the, I don't know. I'm That's kind of where I'm at. I gotcha. I'm with you for sure. Um, and I wish we had more time. But <laughs> I think. I'll just write another book. Oh, perfect. Perfect. You get on that. Um I want to thank you not only for coming on here and sharing your work, but also for the good work you do as a literary citizen, activist, and a generally solid human being. Thank you. That's very kind. This has been Jen Fitzgerald with New Books and Poetry, reminding you to support all the arts, but especially poetry. Poetry.